All right, thank you. All right, well, as it's been mentioned, we uh, are covering a lot of scripture today. We are going to be, Lord willing, covering the last bit of uh, 1 Corinthians chapters 15 and 16 today. Some of uh, 15 is going to be a review. Let me do something here. And um, part of that is that there's a ton. So 15 is a long chapter. If Just covering 15 would be uh, somewhat miraculous for the way we usually do things. There's a lot of scripture there. And so I am going to see if there's anybody that wants to read some of the scriptures as we go through. And I just want to say this, at least through chapter 15 is going to be a little bit more commentary than sermon. Because a lot of it's review, a lot of it's things we've talked about. So I'm just going to make a few points as we go through. We're going to be kind of quick on that. Um, and then as we get into chapter 16, there's a few verses we'll kind of sink and settle on a little bit. But I am going to ask if some there's any volunteers. So if you are in the mood to read or kind of feel like, uh, should I, shouldn't I? I would just encourage you, if you would, to, to be willing to kind of jump in and do some reading of the scriptures. It'll be up here on the uh, screen. So if you remember, the book of 1 Corinthians, we've been in it for quite a while. The big idea we've been talking about in this book is the idea of being conformed to Christ and not the culture. And we can see that as believers, the culture and the world is pushing in on us, trying to press us into its mold every day, wants us believers to become like them. There's pressure for us all the time. And that's what had happened to the Corinthian church. They had begun to kind of start to look like and behave like the world more than Christ. And Paul's writing to straighten them out. They were drinking during their communion services. They had all kinds of uh, sexual issues going on. There was kind of like a women's lib movement going on in the church where the women were trying to take over. It was a mess. And they were, they were shaping their church into something that was acceptable by the world, but not trying to look like Christ. And so that's kind of the big idea of the book. And so I just want to kind of reframe that as we wrap up the book today. So is there anybody that wants to start us out by reading verses one through three? Jaina, real loud. <clears throat> All right. So really what we have here is the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news. The good news is not just that Jesus died, but that he died for our sins. That means that he died to pay for our sins. God set it up originally in the, I don't know if he set it up in the garden, but right from the beginning, the result of sin was death. He said that to Adam and Eve, a result of the sin would be death. And so there needs to be the payment for sin is death. The good news is Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins, all of your sins. And you're like, well, that's good news. But he was also buried, so that death was real. It wasn't just a kind of a imagery or an analogy, or it wasn't just like he was half dead uh, in a coma. He died. He was buried. He paid the price for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. If he would have stayed dead, that would, and Paul's going to make that point later. We'll get to it. That would not be that great of news. If you want to return something at the store, what do you need to usually bring with you? Why do you need to bring a receipt? 
proof of what? To proof that you paid for it. That empty tomb is the proof that your sins were paid for. It's the receipt for your sins. So he died for our sins. He was buried. He paid for your sins. And he was victorious over sin and over death. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. And so now we get to live in that. Next up, who wants to read? Again, we're going to kind of just fly through the first chapter. Go ahead, Diana. Okay. So you could go, man, if, if no one had seen Jesus raised from the dead, it would be kind of suspect, right? Like we'd just kind of be going like, mm, it's kind of hard to buy into. It's not really that hard to buy into when you consider Peter Psalm, all the 12 Psalm, over 500 people saw him, and Paul saw him. So we can rest confidently that Christ did rise from the dead. I feel like if you have this many eyewitnesses to any other historical event, it would not be questioned. Some people want to question the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but give any other historical event with this many eyewitnesses, it would not. It would, they would just say like, no way, there were this many witnesses. And not just witnesses, but men who were willing to die on this truth. So it's not just like someone like, oh, yeah, I saw him too. Oh, yeah, I did too. Oh, are you willing to die? Yeah, I saw him, and I'm willing to die standing on that as a witness to that. Like, that's proof. He was. So your faith in the resurrection, this whole chapter is about the resurrection. It's not just some mystical kind of hope or dream or fantasy. It's factual. Jesus Christ did factually rise from the dead. It's a true. He is alive and well right now. Okay, next. Who wants to read? Uh, Mackenzie. Oh, you're, you're next up, Tina. Go ahead, Mackenzie. Real loud. All right. So a couple of things. Not worthy. Paul was not worthy. Christ revealed himself to him anyways. Giving an undeserved gift to Paul, that's grace. God's grace. Now, what did that grace do in Paul's life? It motivated him to labor more abundantly. So as we look at this, we need to realize that what is true of God's grace for Paul in seeing Christ is true of God's grace for us. God's grace goes to the unworthy. We could, we could go around the room and we could all say how unworthy we feel because of our sin, right? The fact of the matter is you are unworthy. I am unworthy. This isn't a feel good about yourself place because of you're so awesome. This is feel good about yourself because God has given you an undeserved gift. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. But that's the whole message of grace. And so grace transforms, just like it transformed Paul when we embrace and soak in that and believe that and stand in God's grace. And even he talks about this in Romans. Does that mean we just want to keep sinning and sinning and sinning and saying, I got a gift. I just want to take advantage of it. No. Grace is supposed to motivate us to work hard. And so people can say, I took a free gift and you... Uh, I think we were talking about this a little bit last week. 
essentially, spiritually speaking, we're all charity cases. No one typically wants to be a charity case. The big fear in someone being a charity case is they'll take the charity and it does happen in our world. And they just keep taking advantage of it and 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 neglecting the work that they should be doing. But the way it charity is supposed to work is you give somebody some grace or some charity. And then, then they have the ability to start doing things that they should be doing. You kind of give them a hand up. We usually call it for us. It's not even really a hand up. It's a hand out of the pit of hell. And based on that, we're so grateful for what God did that we're motivated to work hard. And that's what Paul's saying here. I worked more abundantly because I realized what God did for me. And so if you've realized what God has done for you, it should be motivating you to work more for him. And we're going to talk more about laboring for Christ later uh, in the message. Y'all with me? I know we're moving fast, but again, we're trying to cover. We've covered a lot of this. We're, we're covering it. Uh, as a review. Next reader. Oh, yeah, you know. Essence. Oh, keep going. Sorry. Pitiable, yeah. So essentially, if this whole resurrection thing that we're talking about is not true, then your sins were never paid for. Kind of the proof of payment is the resurrected Christ say, hey, the payment was accepted. God accepted that payment, raised him from the dead. If the resurrection is not true, we should all just leave right now because our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. They were never paid for. They were never taken care of. And we, as people who are following Christ, are a joke. Like we are idiots and pitiable for investing our lives in Jesus Christ. But that's not true. And so, again, kind of the same point. If Christ isn't risen then this is all a colossal waste of time. He has been risen. And so we could, for you, I would just maybe encourage you as a way of application, if you kind of still wrestle with like, man, I kind of still feel like the sin is being held against me. I still feel either Christ died for your sins and paid for your sins and that payment was accepted or not. Which side of the line do you want to be on? Yes, he paid for my sins and they were paid for and that payment was good or we kind of want to wrestle like, well, I don't know about this one because I've done it over and over and over. Either they are or they aren't. Put yourself on one side of the line or the other. Because if Christ wasn't risen from the dead and did not pay for your sins, this is all for naught. Right? Okay. Next reader. This is much different than we usually do things, but we're going to get through it. Who's reading? Tip. All right. We've talked about the fact that Christ is Christ is the prototype of our new body. So if we want to know what our new body is going to be like, and we'll get into this a little bit more, we look at what Christ's resurrected body was. Um, and Adam brought what to mankind? Christ brings life and resurrected life to all men. And then he talks about here, he says, Christ the first fruits and Christ at his coming. Here in this church, we teach the rapture. There are some, I'm not going to get all hung up on if you're not a rapture person or you are a rapture person. We believe that there is a rapture. Christ is coming back and taking those saints. Uh, and we will get new bodies. 
and that he is going to come back for us. We're going to get more into that in just a minute. Next reader. Shanna. Okay, so I'm going to kind of summarize this. Bottom line of what he's saying there, Christ is going to conquer every single one of his enemies, including death. And once he does all that, he will kind of, he is reigning, and then he will kind of go, okay, now I'm going to put myself back under the father, the submission to the father, not that he's out of submission, but it's like kind of like he is, He is the focus is all on Jesus Christ as the one reigning. And then he will hand that back over. It says when things are subject, the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. So it's kind of talking about the fact that in the Godhead, there is mutual submission. There is, and it's a picture for us in relationships. But what I want to focus on is we're talking about Christ. <clears throat> he is resurrected and you're kind of going like, yeah, but we don't even see him and look at all the problems. But if he's risen, then why is the world such a mess? He is going to come and conquer all his enemies, including death. If he already conquered death in the grave, why do we still have to deal with death if it's conquered? That's a valid question. It will be. We can't see everything that's going to happen, but it will be accomplished. And this is kind of the order it's going to happen. We could say here that Christ was raised. Then we're in this age we have now. And then the rapture will happen. There will be a tribulation. This is the way we believe it was going to happen. The, the return of Christ with the saints, the millennium, which is a thousand years reign. And Christ will defeat death ultimately. We talked about this before. So right now we're living somewhere in like, let's say right here. Let me see. Let me get a better color. Right in here. It could be right here. I don't know. But somewhere in that church age. But what we believe is Christ has already ascended and is seated with the Father. You believe that? He is seated with the Father. He raised from the dead. He's not in a grave somewhere. He's seated with the Father. We believe he's going to come back in the sky for the saints. We will be taken up with him. First uh, Thessalonians speaks about this. There's some other scriptures. We believe that marks off what we call the tribulation. And a lot of times, uh, this is where you people are talking about the Antichrist and all the different things that go on in the world, the chaos. It's a seven-year period. I don't want to get too much on Israel right now. Although I will say that during the tribulation, Israel turns back to Jesus Christ. And so we believe... That we'll, and we stand with Israel. By the way, this church stands with Israel. The scriptures say those that bless Israel will be blessed. Those that curse Israel will be cursed. We stand with Israel as a church. They are not seeking the Messiah right now as a nation. We still stand with them because they're God's chosen people. God chose them to try and point the whole world to himself. They have got off track when Christ came. They rejected him. And so they're kind of what you might want to call in a timeout right now until they decide to point their hearts back to Christ. That will happen. I believe that's the purpose of the tribulation is to get them to point their eyes back to Christ and to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah, like they should have done originally. But regardless of what they've done with Christ, they are still God's chosen people. He said he will not forget his people. He's not going to reject them utterly. They will be disciplined. They're going to suffer some hardship. So let me just encourage you. 
what's going on. I can't tell you what's happening with Israel and all the details of what that puts us on the prophetic timeline and all this. I do know this. It's an opportunity for people, the Jewish people right now, to be turning to Jesus Christ. So pray that no matter what's going on in their country and this turmoil and all of the hatred and all of the things that are going against Israel right now, that people would be turning to the Messiah. Ultimately, they will, as a nation, as a whole, they will turn their hearts back to him. We are standing with Israel through it all, through the thick and the thin. Just like if you had a kid who went a little wonky and went off the deep end, you don't hate them, you don't write them off, you don't reject them forever, but you may kind of go, you're, you're going to have to suffer the consequences of the wrong stuff you're doing. We love you. We're here when you, that's what Israel is going to come back to Jesus Christ. So we're somewhere in here in this church age. Christ is going to come back rapture. Uh, and then he's going to take us up with them. I believe this will be a Bema seat or a judgment seat where we'll get rewards for the things we've done here. You're like, why work hard on the earth? If we're going this, there will be a, this will be a reward season. I'm going into probably more depth than we should have in our passage. But then he's going to come back with the saints. We will get to come back with him. And there will be a thousand years. I believe this thousand years is going to basically be Eden redone on earth. Literally on the earth. We will be coming back and living in Eden. Like it's where it talks about the lion and the lamb dwelling together. The kids are going to stick their head in snake holes and not get bit. Uh, there's going to be the, the, the weapons will be turned and melted down and used for like pruning hooks because things are going to be awesome. And so we will be with Christ during that time here, the thousand year reign on earth. Now, I don't know why I have one idea, but for some reason at the end of this thousand years, Satan is released. So he's kind of bound up. Satan is released for a while to make one more big swoop to try and get it. Here's what I kind of think the reason for that is. I think it's kind of like if you had a team win or lose, like a team, two teams playing and one beats the other one. And then you get someone who comes in and be like, well, you didn't ever really try to. And you're like, okay, then go again. Give it one another shot. And then you end up beating them again really bad. It's like, no, you see. So that's kind of like my scripture doesn't say that, but you're like, why would he release Satan again? I think it's kind of like, oh yeah, have your try again. We're going to see who really wins this thing. Maybe not. But at this point, if you want to read about this, this is Revelation 20. I believe it is Revelation 20 is where then Satan is released. And then Satan is thrown into the pit. The lake of fire, he is eternally doomed and death is defeated. Finally, totally no more death after that. Does this make sense? Okay, it's kind of a timeline. Uh, I feel like we hear these terms. We hear rapture. We hear tribulation. We hear kingdom. And this is the uh, kingdom. We hear death defeated. And it's kind of like it all just feels like a jumble. This is kind of like a timeline to help us put it in. Um. And if that wasn't confusing, let's get into this next passage. Who wants to read this? Carly, real loud. 
Do not be deceived. Okay. You know how you can avoid that? Bring your Bible next time. Just kidding. She has her Bible up. She has it. I couldn't tease anybody else. I couldn't tease anybody else, but I'm going to throw it at her. Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm just hassling her. <laughs> She's got it. Um, <laughs> the older we get, man, I can barely read this thing. Uh, I got to, like, have, I need to get one bigger print. Couple confusing things. Baptized for the dead. What does that mean? What does baptized for the dead mean? I don't know 100%. Here's two very plausible things. The Corinthians were baptizing for the dead. Wrongly so, but they were also, the idea would be that they, if they get baptized for someone who died, that they are somehow affecting their eternity. They're nowhere in scripture is that taught, nowhere we're told to do that. Some people say, well, maybe that's what was happening. And Paul was just being saying, hey, you do this baptism for the dead thing. And so you obviously think there's something to life after death. The point is, why are you, his point is, why are you even doing that if no one lives again? That's the main point he's making. I don't necessarily think it's that. Here's the other one. They, uh, scholars think that it may be just the, his way of communicating that those who have already died, now you're being baptized to kind of take the place of those who have passed on. And then the next generation gets baptized to take the place of the other ones who passed on. And the next generation gets baptized to take the place. And it's not necessarily a baptism of the dead. It's just his way of communicating that the next generation is continuing to put their faith in Christ. And you're having hope for the future generations that they have eternal life. I don't know if this is the kind of thing that intrigues you. You can spend a bunch of time studying it out, but Paul's main point in this, let's not get away from his main point. His main point is there is life after death. That's his whole point. I don't know what exactly baptism of the dead is, but his point is, why would you do any of this if they do not rise at all? His point is there's life after death. And then he makes this other point and he says, uh, why, why would I be fighting with the beast at Ephesus? And essentially what he's saying is, dealing with these pagan people. The bottom line of what he's saying is, why would we make these sacrifices in our life if we're just going to live for Christ and die? If this is it, go out and party and have a good time. Live it up. He who dies with the most toys wins. All of those things. But he's saying that's not how it works. And so his point here is, the resurrection matters and makes a difference because it's going to dictate how we live today, right? If I tell you that you're going to get a prize or you're going to have some reward in the future if you do certain things or live a certain way, that's going to motivate you. Even though it's not happening right now, you're looking to the future. And that's what he's saying. He's like, you do these things in your life because you're looking forward to the future so the the point is you're having trouble living right today think 
am I being future-minded or am I just thinking about today? Because you will live different. If you're just thinking about today, right? If I told you it's all ending tomorrow and that's the end of everything, you would probably live very different than if I told you you're going to live another 20 years here on the earth and then you're going to go into eternity forever. That's going to that's going to be two different totally different ways of living. If I said you're dying tonight, you would probably have a different attitude about what you're doing this afternoon, right? All right, next passage. You guys are doing good on the read and keeping it going. Next group, next person going, yeah, Levi. You didn't know we got more. Okay, I'll finish. You did, you did a lot. However, spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man from the Lord of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Great reading. That was a ton. Uh, good job. You did better than I did on my short one. The idea here is what we live in now, these bodies we live in now, the new is not going to be like them. He gives the idea of a seed. And so uh, I was talking to Carly, like picture we have a little lemon tree in our backyard and we get seeds out of those lemon. I put that seed on the counter. That is a seed that is simple. It's small. It's insignificant. It's I mean, there's a lot to it, and that's kind of like our earthly bodies. Like, there's, it's a seed. Once that seed dies, it goes into the ground. You plant a seed, it ends up dying. But then what does it produce? A tree. Something totally different, even though it's born out of that original seed. Something so much more marvelous, so much more grand. If I said, hey, I have a seed for you here or have a full-grown lemon tree for you here, most people would want that lemon tree. And the idea here is we are essentially just in seed form now of what we will be one day. We're going to be totally different, way better, not necessarily saying bigger physically, but so much more grand than what we are now. We're a seed compared to a tree. He's saying there's two different things. The seed has to die to become... And there's two different kinds of flesh. You have a bird flesh, 
a human flesh, and then you have the heavenly. And so the idea here for us is we must endure the earthly before we can enjoy the heavenly. And sometimes that's what it feels like is we are just enduring day in, day out, grinding it out. But with the mindset for us as believers is I get to enjoy something so much better down the road. And that will shape how you endure today. Okay. Uh, Nick, why don't you want to read? Thanks. All right. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know why I've always had this picture of, uh, and it's a weird picture, but it's like kind of like out of a sci-fi movie. And I pictured death being this like very nasty, uh, strong, powerful monster. And then something coming up out that's way bigger and just and swallowing it up is big and bad and nasty as death seems. Jesus Christ is more powerful and no matter how much negative stuff death impacts us, which is horrible, the victory in Jesus Christ will swallow that up. It's nothing compared. The power of Jesus Christ is nothing compared. And it talks about immortality, immortality. And the idea here is, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5 or 7, I can't remember. It talks about our earthly dwelling is like a tent. And so you think about that. And essentially what we're going is going from a tent. And then he's, you know, the scriptures where he talks about go, I go to prepare a place for you. Some versions say mansion for you. And the difference between living in a tent and living in a mansion, and you can endure tent living. We go do it once or twice a year. We go camp, right? If you knew that's your forever destiny and you're trying to just keep fixing your tent up. But most of us, what we're doing is like two more nights. We get to go home and take that shower and hit the Right. Or we try and like kind of dress up our tent a little bit, but we're, our goal is not to stay in that tent forever. And what he's saying is you're going to move out of the tent and move into a mansion. Don't make your tent, your permanent dwelling place. You will move to something incorruptible. Again, he's continuing to help them to see down the road. Uh, death is victory for the believer. I've seen, I've had this picture uh, and I've shared it with some of you. Think of the most glorious vacation you would want to go on in your life, like your dream vacation or your dream place to live. Like, I'm going to go live here. I'm going to move here. 
And then a picture going down this map, you're, you're traveling to that place, you're traveling to that place, you're traveling to that place, and you get to the end of it, you know, and the end of our life, essentially. Now you picture flipping that map over, and all of a sudden you're in there. You ever see the crease of a map? Like you just look, if you just look at a map and you have something drawn on it, this is for the older generations, those of us who had paper maps, you can see only to a certain spot of your travels, right? Unless you flip the map over and then you could realize, oh, that's our final destination. That's what it is for the believer. It's like you're going to reach that final resting place, the final place of glory. It's not all down here in the journey we are facing down here, even though that a lot of times that's what we're seeing. When we die, it's like the map is flipped over and we get to see and reach our final destination. Our final destination is not on the map we cannot see. We can't see. That makes sense? All right. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain. What's the contest? What has what this whole chapter been about? If we had to kind of sum up, what's he talking about in this whole chapter? The resurrection, new life. He's saying you are going to be raised from the dead. Therefore, since you know you're going to be raised from the dead, since you know that, here's what he says. Be steadfast, be immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain. When we have the resurrection in mind, it will motivate us to live here, steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, what he says here is the resurrection, one of the things he mentioned is energizes us to serve the Lord. That's what this next chapter is going to be about. We're going to move through quickly. But he talks about abounding in the work of the Lord. So I want to give you some ministry truths from chapter 16. Okay, we're doing good. Someone hang in there. We got just a little bit more reading. Who wants to do some reading? You can reread if you read once. I'm not, I, some people don't like reading it all, Cass. Okay, so he just got done ending. In, in the original manuscript, there was no chapter. They didn't, uh, there were no verses. It just ran from one thought into the next thought. And so the thought he just said was abounding in the work of the Lord, doing ministry. You guys are going to be ministers because you're thinking of eternity. So that's going to make you want to work hard and minister for the Lord now. And the first thing he mentions is money. So he's kind of going like, hey, think eternally. When it comes to your money, I'm going to be showing up to town there. I want you to make a collection. So what we're going to say is just a couple quick uh, principles of giving from this is give regularly. You're, so uh, the first day of the week, I'm not going to go through this. I just want, you know, I didn't just come up with these principles. You can go back and look at it uh, as he may prosper. That's in proportion. Um, so there's, these are, not just out of the blue principles. They're from that scripture. Give regularly. He said the first of the week. Give proportionately. So in other words, if you're a billionaire, your giving should reflect billionaire status. If you're barely getting by, just give according to what you can give in proportion to what you have coming in. 
Give to those who are trustworthy and have accountability. Here he says, uh, oh, where does it say? He says, uh, whoever you approve. So he basically says, I'll take the money with someone that you guys approve. So it's not like just hand me the money. He's like, we can have one of your guys come along with us. There's a trustworthiness. And so we all know we've heard the stories of the TV evangelists and all these different people that are uh, conning people out of money. One biblical principle is give where there's accountability or some a trustworthiness. And he says, giving to the poor saints, they're giving to the saints, give to benefit or meet the needs of believers. So for us, that might look like you're like, what does this look like? It would be giving, taking in proportion on a regular basis, not just once a blue moon, but whatever a regular basis is for you in proportion in a trustworthy ministry. And so the idea is don't just give all your money. I'm not saying don't give money to the Humane Society. I'm not saying don't give money. If you want to give money to the Humane Society, give money to the Humane Society. But some of your money should be given to benefit believers. Should be given for people, in particular, brothers and sisters in Christ to benefit them or to meet a need. Okay? Next passage, who's on this one? Then kind of the focus here is ministry. Ginger. Great door, many adversaries. Our principle, our ministry principle, if we're thinking about ministry and doing an abounding work for the Lord, you may think, I'm giving my work, I'm working for the Lord. It should go smooth. He just said, I got a great opportunity, but in this opportunity, I got to go face my enemies. So just because you're serving, don't think everything is going to go smooth. As you're serving the Lord and abundant and working hard to minister and you want to serve him, be ready for opposition okay next passage peter All right. Ministry is a team sport. Here, he's already, he's talking about Timothy. He's talking about Apollos. The idea that ministry is to be done as a team. It's not just supposed to be one pastor doing the ministry of a church. It's team sport. I'm going to read this, these verses. Uh, we're going to spend a couple minutes on this and we'll be ready to wrap up really quick here. Watch. There's five instructions here. Watch. Stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you done, all that, all that you do be done in love. I would say, men, everybody, this is a great passage, and it's meant for everybody. It's not just meant for men. Men, this would be a great passage to memorize. 
because this is what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be watching. We're supposed to be standing fast in the face. We're supposed to be brave. In some versions, it says be men. It says be a man in some versions or be as a man. Uh, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The idea of standing or watching guard is the idea that there's a city with like a walled city and there are sentries on the walls watching and making sure no one comes in. For us, the application to that is we need to be on guard, watching our own hearts, watching our own home, and watching our own churches, because the enemy is trying to get into your home and wreck your family. The enemy is trying to get into your heart and twist up your heart. The enemy is trying to get into our church and tear apart our church. So as he's talking about, hey, I want you guys living for Christ. I want you not to be conformed to the world. I want you to be conformed to Christ. No, the enemy is trying to mess that up all the time. So we need to be on the alert. Many people, you see them cruise around town, and they are just clueless to what's going on. And I, as I say to them, I'm con constantly telling the girls, head up, head up, especially in parking lots. So I'm like, head up in the parking lot, head up in the parking lot, head up on the parking lot, head up in the parking lot. Pretty soon we're just walking like this in the parking lot. We need to keep our head up spiritually. This isn't just looking out for bad guys that are creeping around our town and our city. This is the enemy is trying to throw you a curveball and trying to deceive you and wreck your home and your family. And he's done it for many of us. He's got in there to our lives, into our heart, into a sneaky, sneaky desire or whatever it is. So be on the watch. He says, stand firm in the fast, faith. He doesn't say stand firm on your personal property rights, stand firm on the stand firm against uh, this political party. His point is stand firm in the faith, the biblical teachings. And I kind of picture this, imagine this. Imagine someone says, hey, uh, Rob, I'm giving you a property, your dream property. It's a bunch of acres out of the lake or whatever it is, wherever Rob's dream property is. A big mansion, it's yours. You just, you just need to stay there, keep keep it. And then someone comes and says, hey, this property is mine. I'm telling you, taking over this property. It shows them some fake paperwork or whatever. And someone else comes and tries to come up with hey, we're going to move in here. We want to do anything for this part of the house. We're going to, that's what the enemy is trying to do. We can get around. Been given victory. We've been promises, and the enemy wants to take us out. And think we all stand on stand on those cases. Like, wait, I'll just I'll just give you an example of this. Many many people know because trying to not cross the center sense. The enemy is coming, and I'm trying to say, "We're joyous." I I want to join the success. I got a lot of bunch of. Sin, uh, 
don't talk about our church needs to be more inclusive. We need and the reality is we need to be brave because the world is trying to push us into its mold. Be strong. The idea here is strength, and it's not even really be strong in yourself. So. This whole passage is not a macho passage, but I feel like it's what we as men need to be doing. We need to be living for Christ boldly. We need to be strong. And the idea here is that we are drawing on his power and the strength of his might. And be strong. If you want to be strong, draw on Jesus Christ. Then he says, let all that you be, do be done in love. All of this stuff should be done in a loving way. Not bashing people over the head in your bravery. Not, and then just so kind of as a... Let me just ask you this. Is there somebody in your life you refuse to love? This passage is saying, let all that you do be done in love. And that is a tough one. Or we think, well, this isn't, the idea here is love all the people God has put in your life. And no matter what you're doing, look for a way to love people. That's the last thing we usually want to do. But the idea here is that we would do that. This is the last chunk, I believe. He wants to round us out here. I know we're going a few minutes late. That people are like, oh, let's get it going here. Yeah. I, no, wait, 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 wait. No, I, er, no, no, no. Go ahead. AI. All right, good. That's a tough one. So I'm going to keep going. The churches of Asia greet you. Kia and Priscilla uh, greet you heartily at the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't do that literally here today. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Wow. Oh, Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So he names a bunch of sp specific particular people here. And the idea is relationships are vital to ministry. As he's talking about abounding in the work of the Lord, abounding, it happens as we have relationships with real people. Our big idea in this book is be conformed to Christ, not the culture. If you want to be able to do that, you're going to have to have your eyes focused on the future and on the resurrection. I know that was a ton. We well, we all we all did it. We all did it. I do want to say thank you for for being willing to stick around a few extra minutes. If you want and you feel like oh that was too much, just go back and reread the passage. And some of you are like I had enough this morning. That's okay too. I want to just remind you: we have hope beyond this world. Live for something beyond today and beyond this world. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, that we do have hope because of him. I pray that you would bless each person here. And just even as we kind of dove in and covered a ton of stuff, I pray that you would bring out the things that each person needs. And that rather than feeling annoyed or frustrated or rushed, that they would uh, just through your spirit, that they would realize that they are getting truth from your word that is life for us. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Have a great Sunday, everybody.